Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When we think about our unhoused community, Nashville is no longer just Nashville. Nashville is now Antioch, Hermitage, Westmead, many tight communities with their own culture, nuanced challenges and options. WPLN contributor Tasha A.F. Lemley takes us to one church in Madison where the building is seeing a new life. We're standing in a church that's been here 170 years at Gallatin Pike and Neely's Bend. Pastor Jay Voorhees, though, he's been here for about a decade. When I first got to City Road Chapel in Madison, it just became clear that our church was located in a place where we were going to see a lot of homeless folks come to the door looking for help. We're a church, and that's what churches are supposed to do. City Road Chapel is a Methodist church that's experienced the same membership decline as many mainstream denominations. And with 80,000 square feet, there's a lot of unused space, plenty for this little laundry room. And so folks can come on Mondays and Wednesdays between 7 and noon. They can come just hang out and charge the phone and get a cup of coffee, all that kind of stuff. They can get laundry done. They can get a shower. We'll see 40 to 70 people over the course of a morning. Two years ago, HUD and Metro's Office of Homeless Services reached out to see if Jade be up for starting a temporary shelter. That's when they expanded their daytime services, and now they're using some of their space kind of like a hostel. The shared bedrooms have private cubicles with some storage. So folks come into our center here, they live here, this is their residence, this is their address, this is their home, and it's their home until we can work with them to find a way to move them into some sort of more stable housing situation. These shelters are a public-private partnership with lots of collaborators. The church provides the space and helps people through the transition. Another nonprofit, Community Care Fellowship, oversees the program and provides staffing. And Metro gets people into a database as one of the very first housing steps. IDs, paperwork, food stamps, birth certificates, all of that can happen here through housing navigators. Of course, navigation just means to steer you in the right direction, and um, that's what they will do here. That's Terry Masterson. She and her husband, David Wooten, live at the church. We were both born and raised right here in Madison. I know this place uh, all my life. Next door here where the Walgreens is now, there used to be a barber college, and I went to barber school there way back in the 80s. She's small, bright-eyed, using a walking aid and wearing a Jelly Roll T-shirt. Before coming to the church, she and David were living in a tent, and even though there's not a sobriety requirement for the shelter, she says they were scared moving in would keep them from being able to use. I mean, we started out on crack cocaine, and we went to the pain clinic, and it began as normal uh, until we became addicted to the pills. And the next progression from that was, was the, the heroin, the fentanyl. Um, that's David's ringtone. And that's a, someone we admire a lot. It's Jelly Roll there. And <laughs> As we traveled back and forth here on Monday and Wednesdays, we learned more of the program and what Pastor Jay does here. And uh, she got in immediately. They have stairs, so I wasn't able to get in. David's in a wheelchair and living on the property in a tent until they can get housing. 
They have some steady employment and are now both in a methadone program. We both have come a long way, and we couldn't have done it if it hadn't been for City Road or Pastor Jay. Initially, the plan was for folks to stay one to three months. But Jay says the reality is closer to three to six, partly because there's a lack of housing to move to, but also because they need time to heal. In the same way that an addict has to go through a recovery process, I'm a believer that 90% of the folks we see coming in off the streets need a recovery process just for the experience of being homeless. And hopefully this is a place we can do it. Recently, Metro Social Services asked for help housing families with children. So City Road Chapel now has four families in what used to be the church daycare. They will soon have up to nine. As I go through my 14 million keys. So if you can picture your old church, you get the idea. Same shiny floors and paneled ceilings. Classrooms now outfitted with bunk beds for kids and a double bed for the parents. Bathrooms attached. There's been a huge crisis in the number of families with children that are experiencing homelessness. And part of that is due to the fact of the huge number of evictions that we're seeing in the city. Jay says there are about a thousand evictions coming through the courts every month. Folks are turning to a handful of regional mobile housing navigation centers like this one. Jay says two families are already on their way out, thanks to nonprofit partners like Safe Haven. Hey, it's just me. Y'all doing okay? Yes, I go sign my lease. Yay! The mayor recently dedicated 50 million COVID dollars to homelessness. And part of that goes to funding this program. So the church gets $5 per person per night and $10 per family. And I want to be really honest here because there, you know, do we do this because we think God wants us to do it out of the love of our heart? Yes. Do we receive some financial compensation for the use of the building from the city? Yes. So why is this kind of shelter called a mobile housing navigation center? Well, because the church isn't expected to do this forever. Theoretically, if one area didn't need the temporary shelter anymore, another building in another community could take over. Oh my God, oh my God, hail Mary. For Madison, Pastor Jay says that's years away at best. So on this corner, Madisonians like Terry and David will continue to do their laundry, take showers and shelter, and find their way to a permanent place. It's not how many times you fall down, it's how many times you get back up. You know, if you fall down seven times, you're standing up eight times. One more time, one more chance, Lord. Give us one more chance. We can do this. This is Nashville. I'm Tasha A.F. Limley. To get the details about Madison, Pastor Jay Voorhees is with us today, along with Caroline Lindner and Frank Simmons. I want to thank you all for being here. Welcome. Thanks, to for, this having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now, Jay, I want to start with you. You've, we've been continuing, you know, we're seeing lots of campsite closures. Right. How does the impact, how does all of that impact the housing center in your church? Well, it, it absolutely impacts it in terms of we're one of the few resources that's available to the city to actually move folks into. Uh, now, again, we're limited to 14 beds in our housing navigation center. So the, the ability to be able to do that, particularly when we can't move folks through as quickly, mm -hmm. means that there's a limit to how much we can help. But um, I think where the struggle comes for us sometimes is um, we have a very large homeless community in Madison, and we'd obviously love to be able to help our neighbors um, 
get off the streets as quickly as possible to address the situation in our community. Um, but as camp enclosures happen in other parts of the city, sometimes folks from those enclosures will be prioritized into our center. And while we, you know, we welcome everybody, um, it does mean that some of the folks that we work with on a daily basis get pushed to the back of the line. Who's initiating the closures? Is it purely just the city taking those actions? So I, I'm a member of the shelter committee for the continuum of care, which is the group that oversees all of the homeless services in Nashville, or at least provides an, a, a little bit of input along the way. And so there's a process that came up in terms of prioritizing which encampments are to be closed. Uh, and that looks at a variety of different things. As it's turned out, pretty much all of the in, the closures that are being sort of managed by the city and the Office of Homeless Services, um, by and large, they've tended to be on public properties. Mm. Um, it, and some of that's determined by like the state, uh, the truck stop, uh, the TA encampment that's about to close. The state has said, this is our property, you got to get them off. And that sort of pushes them to the front of the list. Uh, in Madison, the homeless community has often been on private properties and so the displacement that has happened has been when landlords have said, well, we're going to develop our property now and folks get moved off, but they, we never get quite moved onto the prioritization mm -hmm. list because of just the way the whole process works. Now, Caroline, you work as a housing navigator for Cityville Chapels. You're familiar with Madison. I'm curious, like what's an aspect of the unhoused community in Madison that many people just may not know about? Um, something that I learned when I started this position is that Madison, and Jay can help me exactly with this, but Madison uh, is the home of the largest nomadic uh, unhoused community. Um, so, mm. more yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um, you know, we see a lot of transition. Uh, so, in our showers of blessing, our showers and laundry work that we do. Um, we'll see over the course of year anywhere between two and three hundred unique individuals. And uh, again, on any day, we'll see forty to seventy people, but it just kind of cycles through. And uh, what's interesting about that is that sometimes folks will think, well, they're coming from downtown. The, the language we often hear is, well, they've pushed the homeless out to Madison. Mm. The fact is, is there were already a lot of homeless folks in Madison. Mm -hmm. there, there, we are on a bus line that is maybe the most functional bus line in Nashville. <laughs> so that uh, uh, that does mean we do get some folks. But for the most part, these are folks that have decided they want to be out of downtown. Madison is their home. They know where to get resources. And they really resist going to other places. Frank, how long have you been in Madison? Um, as of May, I moved uh, to Madison. Um, a guy named Darren Bradbury um, helped me out. Um, I was um, homeless for about two months with a friend of mine, and I just couldn't do it anymore. And I called him, and he um, picked me up. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up in the hospital for a week, and after that, they had a bedroom for me. And from that, I have a job now at City Road Chapel, and um, things are going pretty well. But I've noticed a lot of um, um, pushing from with the homeless community um, from the police more so than anything. Um, and I, see, I see that they're not really um, empathetic mm. with them at all. I mean, they um, if if someone's wanting them moved off the property, they stay there until they're gone in a pretty 
vehemently angry about it. It's not like they have any type of politeness or even understand that some of these people may have brain issues or it's not just drugs, you know. I mean, a lot of people are homeless because they have issues with their brains and they're trying to um, figure it out. Mm. And yeah. if you don't have a person helping them figure it out, then where do they stand? You know. Yeah, I think that I think part of that, and having talked with the police department, and developed a relationship with them. They they're put in a difficult position. They really don't want to have to kick people off, and yet um, the law and the way it's written requires that they, you know, a private owner um, wants their property cleared, and so they have to do it, and so it puts them in a difficult situation. I think they're frustrated. Because they, in most cases, they don't have the skills, the training, the background. Uh, we don't have partners to care yet in Madison, or is it that what it's called? Partners to care, the the police mental health response mm-hmm. team. Right. Um, that's coming to Madison, but it hasn't gotten there yet. So that means that you have just officers with weapons that show up and say you have to get off the property, which huh. is a traumatic experience. A very right. traumatic experience with people who are already dealing with a lot of difficulties. And 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 that's the thing for folks to understand. You know, there's a a stereotype that homelessness is about drugs. And certainly there's a lot of folks that have drugs, but uh, for a lot of our folks we see, they're dealing with just overall trauma that has led to mental health issues. And to self-medicating. And to self-medicate. So then they end up uh, really struggling because they, um, because their, their underlying needs are not met. Mm -hmm. Caroline, I understand you're in recovery yourself. Yeah. How, is that journey? How is that path of being in recovery? How does that assist you and help you with the work you're doing with people right now? I mean, that's what fuels why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, I feel like I've had a kind of a theme in my life um, of being alone. And so kind of bouncing off those feelings and I can bring up those feelings very quickly, very easily. And I, I just want to walk with people in the hardest time of their life. Yes. I want to walk right beside yeah. them. Um, you know, they get judgment. People get judgment all the time. Mm-hmm. But then there's an extra layer of, you know, addiction and then an extra layer of homelessness and an extra layer of hygiene or whatever, you know, that's all stacked up against people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people are not seen. What are they what are they telling you about not being seen when you're working with them? What have they said? I think that the main thing that I was just naive about is I assumed that people would trust me because I knew I was trustworthy and because I knew I had great intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that I get a lot is just, you know, trust has to be earned for a long time. And most of these people have none left because at every turn of their life, something has gone wrong. Someone has let them down. Yes. It's been super hard to even get, you know, an inch forward. And so, that's really what's kind of motivated me that I want to be that trustworthy person. I want to be accountable. I want to show up when I say I'm going to show up. What, what do you do to gain people's trust, even though it's hard to earn? I show up when I'm supposed to show up and I listen and make eye contact. And, uh, you know, I call people back that want me to call them. It's all just about being accountable and being there and being that mm-hmm. solid yeah. kind of person. Now, now, Frank, I understand you have a frontal lobe injury. Yes. What can you tell us about this? I mean, you were talking about how folks who are, who are unhoused, specifically the unhoused community in Madison, how they're dealing with mental traumas. Um, how does it affect folks 
who don't have a permanent place to live. It affects us in a way that most can't see. Um, so when you're talking to a person and trying to explain to them things, they hear that you're eloquent, you speak fine or whatever. So they look at you and think that you're okay. Mm-hmm. Even though you're telling them, hey, I have this issue with cognitive issues, memory issues. And they're like, well, I think you could do it, but I'm telling them I can't. So over a probably five-year span, I've had to deal with this until I met Darren Bradbury in The Beat and finally was heard because in that place of not being heard, there was homelessness bouncing back and forth from couch to couch um, until they're sick of you. Mm-hmm. Um, not having a job, um, waiting on disability, not being able to do the paperwork for disability, so it extends it four years. Mm-hmm. I mean, just different things, and people don't see because they can't see. I mean, when you can't see um, a brain injury, people they don't it doesn't resonate yeah. for them, and they look at you as if though you're just lazy or you're not trying hard enough, or you're giving up. When or, or it's something Caroline mentioned that you're invisible. Basically, so, so people are invisible, and you're saying that people aren't really heard. No, not heard at all. Because and, of the fact that when you're telling people these types of things, and they see you as homeless, mm-hmm. they're like, "You need to get your butt up and do something better." Mm-hmm. When you can't, you're frozen. You don't have. I mean, cognitively, I couldn't. I can't figure out how to do paperwork. I get frozen, or I get um, anxiety, and I need help with it. And I think if, I think Frank brings up a really good point, which is how difficult navigating finding housing is we think of it as just this thing right. but it's it's really hard for somebody particularly if they've not had any background if they've been through trauma and you run up against roadblock against roadblock against roadblock against roadblock and and there comes a point where it's easy to just sort of give up which where, is more trauma the, which the, is the, more the trauma. roadblock yeah. the roadblock yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the people who are working to help the unhoused community in Madison, the challenges they face, and the services they need. My guests are Pastor Jay Voorhees, Caroline Lindner, Lindner, and Frank Simmons. You can tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, Caroline, the weather is about to get much cooler. It's pretty nice today, but in a month, that could be an entirely different situation. People are going to be looking for shelter. (coughs) Pardon me. Bless you. The Nashville Rescue Mission, that's a place where people go for shelter. But I understand you've kind of stopped offering the mission as an avenue for help for people. Can you tell us why? I think I've never stopped offering it, but I think that um, by now, um, most of the unhoused community have had their own experiences. Um, And then, of course, you know, talk spreads quick to on the street. And uh, so I think that People have these preconceived notions or they've had these experiences firsthand. And so when I suggest, you know, oh, we'll just go to the mission, that is such a simple recommendation, but it needs to go much further. It needs to go to, like Frank was saying, what traumas do you have? Like, would something like that trigger you, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I never went because it would have triggered me. Right, because it's not a one-size-fits-all. What are they saying about the rescue mission and the stories you've heard? Um, I think uh, just sometimes people wouldn't feel safe or things happen that are bound to happen like theft or, you know, just I think that people enter into this is my safety. I'm going to safety. I'm going to be inside for a night. And so when something that isn't safe or they are not happy with happens, Mm. 
they immediately just say, you know, that that's not it for me. You I'm think, not doing it. You think you're going to a place that's going to, at least it offers you shelter from the elements, but there are more dangers inside there. There, there are definitely dangers inside. And uh, and again, this is not to, uh, the, the folks at the rescue mission are doing the wonderful work and Very they're doing best the best they, they can. can. Right. But the, the fact is, is that when you're housing six or seven or 800 people, um, there's no privacy. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I often hear from the residents when I talk to them. Uh, again, issues about personal belongings. Um, it's hard to keep your personal belongings safe. And so um, folks don't want to go to the mission because they're afraid they're going to get separated from their belongings. And when, right. if you think about it, you know, you might look at a, a garbage bag of something and think, well, that can't be that bad. But if it's the only thing you've got, mm-hmm. yeah. you don't want to be separated from that. And so that those kinds of issues come up. And the other issue for us, again, in Madison is, that, as I said earlier, People in Madison call Madison their home. Mm. Going downtown is not home and it Mm -hmm. doesn't feel safe and it's a different thing and you don't know where you are and you don't know when you get up in the morning where you're going to get breakfast and all of those kinds of things. Even though a lot of those services are provided, it's just not home. And Mm. so they're just reluctant to leave the area. Now, Frank, Frank, talk to me about this real quick. There's a lot of people who may be listening right now and they empathize with this problem. Let's be real. Empathy ain't going to cut it. No. It's really not going to cut it and get Um, anything happening. So how do you want us? How do you want the people of Nashville in the middle of Tennessee? How do you want people out there in the streets who are listening? How do you want them to act differently? Um, Act differently by being kind. Um, Kindness goes a long way. Um, A lot of people in my life, um, because me, I had a certain standard for myself. So I never looked the role of being homeless but the people who do i've seen them get treated so badly and it sickened me on my stomach because of the fact that they look at all of these people as animals and they're not animals they're people who have hearts they have feelings and most of them are really kind if you get to know them but the reason that they have this chip is because everyone's looking at them with a chip Mm. right and so being kind to these people and just giving them a kind word. They don't necessarily want money from you, but a blessing or just saying, how are you today? Or or not even how are you today, but I hope your day gets better or whatever. I mean, because most homeless people don't want to hear how are you today because you see how they are. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just being kind to a person goes a long ways, though. You're talking about recognizing, recognizing someone's humanity. Yes, right. recognizing that and just having a little empathy and being positive towards them instead of not saying a word and acting like you're afraid they're going to bite your head off. Acknowledging them the, and right. looking in the eyes. And, and that person. Stoplights. And that person, you mm-hmm. don't realize that little kind gesture could make them change their mind on what they may be planning on doing. They may want to turn their life around because of that. I mean, and and with me, I've always been a person who was kind to everyone. Even though they may have taken from me, treated me badly, whatever, I just feel that it goes a long ways because it's love. You know, love goes a long ways. And these people, not just the homeless, but people that are almost homeless, they're on the streets or whatever, they're bouncing around. See, homeless isn't just being homeless in the streets. Mm. If you're bouncing around on couches, and these people say you can't stay at their house while they're gone. You're pretty much homeless because you don't have a place to stay or be while people are gone or whatever. So 
it's not just an issue of people being in the streets. It's people just getting homes where they can stay and be, you know. And I feel that it's just there's so much more that people could do as far as just coming out and being a part of the advocacy of making these people's lives better. Mm -hmm. Because me personally, I want to start a nonprofit for people with brain trauma. I mean, because I don't see, not, there's not many places for that. They have it for bipolar and all of this stuff, but I want to focus on people yeah. individually, what their trauma may be and, and, and what they need to work on. It could be PTSD or whatever. And respecting and honoring each other's humanity. Right. Exactly. I really want to thank my guests. I want to thank you all for coming on to the show. Thank you to Frank Simmons and Caroline Lindner, who are both with the Housing Navigation Center at City Road Chapel. Again, thank you both for being with Thank us you today. For Thank you us. so much. Really appreciate it. Pastor Jay Voorhees will join us later on in the show. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk to someone who has worked with the unhoused community in Los Angeles and is now doing the same work with the Nashville Rescue Mission. You can share your comments and thoughts by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Thank you all. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today we're talking about the unhoused community in, Ma in Madison and how localized services are only one step in providing help. Our city has a diverse set of neighborhoods and communities. That means unhoused people in the Nashville area will have diverse needs. The Nashville Rescue Mission is known as the central hub that offers shelter to unhoused people in the city. So how is it helping people? And what does the mission need to continue to help? For that, I'd like to welcome my next guest. Joy Flores is the Vice President of Ministries with the Nashville Rescue Mission. Joy, thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so tell me, this: what's the mission's role here in the city? Uh, currently, we're the only walk-in emergency shelter um, that offers immediate housing, um, emergency services. Yeah. Uh, yeah. About how many people can you service? Uh, we usually have about 800 a night. Uh, not something that we're necessarily proud of, but we will never turn away anyone who's seeking shelter. Uh, we're the city's response for severe weather, which, you know, I've only been here for eight weeks, so I'm just uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tails, my friend. <laughs> oh, you, you have not seen one of the famous uh, Middle Tennessee storms yet. Uh, no, I have not. You will. Can't wait. You Can't will wait. pretty soon. Okay, so you're, you've been, you recently living here in Nashville for two that's months. Right. You have experience working with the unhoused community in Los Angeles. I do. That's right. Much larger city, mm -hmm. a lot more people right. to work with. How do you compare the two so far, even though it's only been eight weeks? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I feel like when you're dealing with 86,000 homeless people in LA County, mm -hmm. um, obviously we're, we're, we struggle with the same things. We're not built to scale. Uh, we don't have enough shelter beds. Uh, but we also don't have legislation that helps uh, push people into um, immediate shelter. So you have tons of encampments. And, you know, I mean, I was on Skid Row and Skid Row is an outdoor sane asylum. So you have 4,000 people wandering the streets um, that are unhoused. Uh, where here, obviously, those numbers are not the same. Um, so, yeah, I'm just really excited to, uh, you know, to work with all the other nonprofits and organizations in the city that are trying to address this. 
uh, like Jay said, COC, Continuum of Care, the Shelter Committee, just trying to get everybody on the same page so that the mission isn't not is not necessarily the only place that we can send mm-hmm. people um, that we can work together and yeah. What can what can the mission do to really improve the way it offers services to people and, and helps to meet their needs? Well, one of our um, core values is continuous improvement. So we're always, um, we're really big in training our staff. Um, I feel like the mission's kind of got a bad rap, you Mm. know, like some, I don't want to minimize people's experiences, uh, but I think we've come a long way. Um, I've definitely heard that from a lot of people. Um, Things that, you know, from the past, when, you know, we're talking about people not being kind or uh, losing personal property and things like that. Now we have systems in place uh, so that we can minimize that risk as much as possible. Uh, but again, you know, I mean, when we look at the struggles of people experiencing homelessness, you have mental health crisis, you have addiction, you have people who don't want to get well, they don't want to get sober. Um, that's obviously, a, you know, not the majority of them, but we want to meet that need. If you want to come in, we will say yes. Yeah, I know you've been here only for two months. And that's you just right, said, that's you know, right. You heard that the mission gets a bad rap, but there's, yeah. it's the truth that a lot of people don't want to go to the mission. Why do you think that is, outside of the stigma that comes with the mission? I, I seriously think it's probably just old stories. Because mm. I walk the building multiple times. I'm there at odd hours. Um, I get every single incident report. And I'm over all of the people that stay there. So it's my number one goal to change, uh, just change that narrative. You all have been carrying a large weight for mm-hmm. a long time. What, what can be done to kind of ease that weight? What can other communities do in their own specific areas that are s- services similar to mm. what happens at the mission to kind of alleviate some of the pressures that y'all are facing? Well, I mean, I think what Pastor Jay is doing is fantastic, you know, I mean, but he's got 12 beds. So how can we continue to scale to address the problem that we have when it's small organizations like that who, you know, I mean, they can only do so much. Mm -hmm. And so we just take the bulk of it. Yeah. Is the mission at capacity right now? Uh, You know, that's a funny question that you ask, because I think that's a rescue mission philosophy that, yeah, we can say we have a capacity for a certain number of people. But again, that also varies. I mean, right now, I'm not sure if you know, but we are building our new women's campus that's going to open up next month. Uh, Ribbon cutting happens next month. We're super excited about that. Uh, But for the last two years, we've had all of our men and women and families all on one campus. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about capacity, we have a certain number of beds in our transitional housing floor or in our men's recovery program. So they might have space, but in our guest services, which is emergency services, uh, that's just you come in for a bed ticket and you can stay uh, that same day. So I feel like, yeah, we're at capacity in some areas. Um, but other we'd areas love more folks in our open. recovery program. How, how, how many beds? What's the number for the women's campus that's about to open? That's a great question. Again, it, it varies since we have a certain number for life recovery. We have a certain number for moms and families, and then we have a certain number for singles. Okay. Yeah. Tell me, why, why do you do this work? You were in Los Angeles working. You come to Nashville to do this work. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, my why is obviously pretty deep. Um, I'm the youngest of three kids. I had a brother and a sister who were older than me, and my brother, when he was 16, started acting out. Uh, My parents tried everything. They tried every program. They went to every doctor. 
uh, and he was finally uh, dual diagnosed bipolar schizophrenic uh, with self-medicating tendencies, like Frank mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And when you pair those two together, um, he was either super over-medicated or just not present. And when he was 30, he died. Um, he was in and out of every halfway house, lived on the streets, and he he died when he was 30 on the street, about a quarter of a mile from Skid Row. So for me, my question is, I mean, obviously, as a Christian now, where was the church? Um, And when we talk about being kind to people, when we talk about learning their story, you know, you can't build your way out of this crisis. You can't buy your way out of this. This is a you know, there's no one way to homelessness. Everybody came into this situation differently. And some of them came from a family just like mine. And so when we talk about reversing that, it's it, you have to lead with relationship, build trust. And I feel kind of like a ER doctor, right, where I'm mm. just triaging people. Yeah. Like not everybody comes in with a broken leg. Some have a heart attack. And so you have to be able to navigate that and get the people the help that they need. Tell me this. On any given night, like right now, what's the number of people? At the mission? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we're like at, uh, I think last night was probably 775, let's say. Okay, 775 yeah. right now with the weather being nice. Yeah, and that's going to go up. In a few weeks. For sure. Go up and y'all are going to need help. And we're anticipating that to go up. All right. All right. Well, let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about regional shelters and the respite needs in our city. And how can the shelter system be improved? What changes need to be made? You can let us know your thoughts by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're talking about the unhoused community in our city and how regional shelters can help. Now, earlier in the show, we heard about the needs of unhoused people in Madison. Now, let's take a look at the use of regional shelters and how those services can be expanded. I'd like to introduce Brian Hale, the CEO of Neighborhood Health. Brian, thanks for joining us. Welcome back to This is Nashville. Thank you. So what what, what are some of the things? We were talking a little bit earlier about some of the things that the city and the government necessarily haven't done well. Tell me, what are, what are some recent things that you've seen them do well? Well, over the fast, last five years, things have shifted in Nashville in a really wonderful way. Five years ago, we were looking at uh, an emergency shelter system that only operated when it was 28 degrees or below, and it was at the old jail on Harding. So one of the things about that is it's certainly not trauma-informed. Today, we're doing something very different in the city. Metro operates an emergency shelter when it's 32 degrees or below. It operates that shelter in a very different location up on Brick Church Pike. We have a transportation system that goes countywide to pick people up, and we're making sure that everyone, if they're in couples or if they have pets, they can be seen there. So I think what Metro has done over the past four or five years is so encouraging. Now, to be clear, we've got a lot more left to do, mm-hmm. but it's you have to take heart with where things are moving and the intentions and the tremendous amount of effort that's gotten us this far is going to take us further down the pike. So it is a good a step in the right direction. Absolutely. All right. So, got to ask you, 
where can we improve? Well, on a couple of things that would make sense. The first part is, um, and I think that Metro Social Services does this well, when we have multi-day storms, they let people stay inside over the course of the day so they don't have to go back out. Even if it's 34 degrees, that's still pretty cold, and especially if you're being exposed to wintry weather and ice mix. I think the second thing that we've really got to do is figure out how we get as many of those folks into rapid rehousing as possible. So winter shelter and emergency shelter are fine things, and the city has a lot to be proud of there, but it's not shelter. Those things, when it's Mm -hmm. 34 degrees, they're not open. And we've got to make sure that our unhoused neighbors have a place to be that's safe, that's warm, that's dry. And we've got to make that happen 365 days a year. That's where we need to be. We're not there yet. We've got a long way to go, but it's a lot better than where we were just a little bit ago. Now, you were talking about one of the needs is to get people into rapid rehousing. But, you know, earlier in the show, we were talking about just how difficult it is to one to gain trust from folks. But also, people may not be mentally in the situation or emotionally in the situation in the place where they can actively sit down and go through that process. How can this city improve or tailor the process to meet those needs of people? So not only are they, not only are are their mental health and their substance abuse issues being addressed, but simultaneously they can find permanent housing for themselves. Well, I think that there's two tracks here, and what you heard earlier, and what Frank and Caroline were speaking really well to, is what you have to do to establish trust. And I know that Joy and her team and um, Pastor Jay, they all were all very committed to that. But the fact remains that in Nashville, in Tennessee, and in the United States, there is both a time tax on the poor and there's a Byzantine system to get through in order to qualify for benefits. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. Frank was talking about qualifying for disability benefits, and he found the paperwork really challenging. I'm an attorney, and I find that paperwork really challenging. Mm -hmm. But once that paperwork is submitted, the median processing time for applications in Tennessee is 27 months. 27 months to get disability benefits. So that's once you've gotten all your paperwork in a row. We've got to figure out how to reduce the time tax on the poor and simplify these processes. Let me give you another example. A a coalition of 26 organizations wrote to Metro Action Commission Commission Chair uh, Cynthia Croom last year, and we said, look, you've got four different applications for utility assistance that are all duplicative. Mm -hmm. This makes Mm -hmm. no sense. We've got to have a streamlined system that doesn't rely on people using all of their time and energy on filling out ridiculous and redundant paperwork, we need them to focus on what's going to move them forward, <laughs> right. building skills and in, in, in making themselves help, get helping get themselves healthier and employed. That makes a difference. This paperwork doesn't. Now, I'm, I'm no expert. Obviously, I'm just a human being who's here hosting a live radio talk show. But to me, it feels like it's kind of intentional. It almost. Mm. Why the people? Yeah. Why was the system set up to be duplicative and a, a Byzantine labyrinth just to get simple services? It doesn't make sense to me. Well, and and this is where I'm going to sort of lean into some prior experience. I, I used to work in, in the welfare office in the District of Columbia, and then at the Ten Care Agency. I, I don't think that public officials intend it to be that way most of the time. I think they're responding to. Um, oftentimes federal funding requirements for separate serv- for separate applications. I think they're also trying to prevent um, what they perceive to be small instances and small risk of fraud get mm-hmm. amplified in mm-hmm. media. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is go to them with solutions that are informed from the inside and say, look, here's the regulatory environment in which you're working. 
you can make you can meet those obligations with one form. You can meet those obligations with with a four page form instead of a forty page form. You can do that at the sixth grade reading level rather than the tw- uh, the eighteenth tw- grade reading level. That's where we've got to be. And I think uh, I, uh, to build on that, that's where I just continue to argue that we need more and more bodies in terms of doing outreach work and navigation work with folks. It's just unrealistic for most folks that are coming off the streets to be able to navigate that stuff and they need somebody to help them along the way and yet we really still as a city don't have enough people on the ground that are doing that kind of care coordination uh, walking folks through the process helping to hold their hands as they struggle with it we just need more bodies and what we've seen uh, as at a city level is that uh, organizations have actually been reducing outreach workers rather than increasing that mm-hmm. capacity. And so we just need people. We need a lot of people, and that costs money because you got to pay them. Yeah. And that's a struggle. You got to pay them. Now, that is Pastor Jay Voorhees from City Road Chapel and Joy Flores from the Nashville, Nashville Rescue Mission. They're both with us, and thank you both for being with us. Now, let me ask you, Jay, about city leadership. We have a new mayoral administration. Oh, the O'Connell administration was just sworn in. We also have a new Metro Council. What approach are you hoping they take to address some of these problems? To have more folks on the on the floor to. Well, I for me, some of it is taking a long, uh, basically coming up with a long term plan. Um, the problem that we have with homelessness right now is not anything that's going to be fixed overnight, and it's certainly not going to be fixed in response to some television report on this encampment or that encampment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a long way to go. And I know one of my big concerns is uh, is funding over the long haul. Um, we, as you mentioned earlier, there's this $50 million pot of money that's been been given, but that's going to run out in not in the near future. And so at some point, we're not really talking about how do we fund this work? Because this is stuff that's going to carry on for many, many years, and we need to have a funding stream to be able to do it. So uh, my hope is, and in, in the council people and, and with Mayor O'Connell, um, is that they'll begin to start looking at those longer-term structural issues of how we can put together a system that actually works mm-hmm. um, to help people. Now, Joy, you've got big city experience. Mm-hmm. How did the city of Los Angeles... No, 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 we don't need it. No, no, no. Horrible, horrible. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We're talking, you're talking 50 million, we're talking billions with a B. Yeah. Uh, money spent, and our, and our numbers just keep going up. Well, I mean, our, we I will die on the mountain of... We have to regionalize services, decentralize our, you know, main population and help those smaller local communities. Obviously, I still say, and and this was a big problem in L.A., they were very anti-shelter, which, you know, (laughs) not that we're not here, Mm. but I think it's you have to have immediate shelter paired with long-term development engagement and programs. You can't just, I mean, the whole housing first, harm reduction, all of that. You can't just take someone who's devastated by homelessness in every way, put them in an apartment in LA. It was an $800,000 studio apartment with no wraparound services and expect the problem to go away. You have to have both, but you have to start with shelter. You have to bring them inside so that you can triage those needs. Um, And I don't think that that means sending them all to the National Rescue Mission. I think that if we regionalize those services, we can start making an impact because you have those smaller numbers and you're leading with relationship. You're actually getting to know their stories. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And to Joy's point, I think regionalization is really important. When you look at the map of Davidson County, what have we done? We've closed encampments in Brookmead Park, which is in West Nashville. We've closed encampments in Caldwell Park in South Nashville. We've closed encampments under the Jefferson Street Bridge in North Nashville. There's talk about doing work in Hermitage. And then we've, and this whole show has been dedicated to Madison. We've got to be where folks are. And one of the key parts is that, you know, the city right now directs almost everybody to the mission in the core of downtown. We've got to have other places that that we send that that folks feel like they can walk in. That's why Neighborhood Health has 11 locations for a reason. We've got to be where you are. That's That's one one of the things we learned early on. We um, when we started doing the showers and laundry service, the homeless resource thing that we do a couple days a week. Um, we originally partnered with Community Care Fellowship, who we work with on the, the centers that we run, um, to we were going to bus people down to their shower and laundry program, the Ken and Carols that people have gone to for years. And so we were, we'll run a shuttle bus, we'll run folks down, we'll bring you back, all that kind of stuff. Folks wouldn't go because they just scared of leaving the community. If I get out of there, I'm not sure if I'm going to get back. I'm not. And so that's when we said, okay, we're going to have to bring that to um, to Madison. And so now we're open two days a week to provide those services and shower. The people has just started partnering with us to do showers on uh, Friday nights from six to eight. Um, it, it does take all of us working together. It's got to be a community response. Um, but we also have to look at how a system exists where we're able to work collaboratively and so that I could hand things off to somebody. Let me ask you about that system. What could or what should that system really look like? How many shelters, where, what neighborhoods, what regional shelters and availability? How how, how can this look if we're talking about a dream scenario that's actually effective? It's hard to answer that question. Let me tell you where the starting point is. It's the starting point that Joy has my cell phone number and I have hers, which is absolutely Mm -hmm. the case, that Jay and I have each other's cell phones and that we're working hand in glove. There are going to be opportunities that present themselves, whether they're churches that are disbanding or have property that they're selling, and we need to jump on those opportunities when they pitch up. But having each other's cell numbers, working together really closely, spending time together in the foxhole, figuring out individual cases, that's what makes this moment work. And then we, we tie that into some insight into regulatory policy and specific solution-focused ideas, and we're going to get there. We have a tweet now by Judith Tackett on X, formerly known as Twitter. Judith is a former guest of the show. She tweets, at This is Nashville. I love the conversation on long-term investments and solutions. This includes more focus on cross-systems collaboration and coordination around prevention. The homeless system cannot do it alone. Where can the private sector and businesses, we see spiritual organizations like yours, Pastor Jay, stepping up and filling in. You know, we see government organizations stepping in, 501c3 stepping in. What about other businesses? What about the people in the communities, in the Madisons, in the Hermitage, in Antioch? What can they do to help? It's been our, our argument is that in Madison, that addressing the homeless situation that we have, the, the needs of our friends that are experiencing homelessness in Madison has to be a Madison problem that everybody in Madison needs to understand that the city's not going to come in and fix this for us, that we're going to have to work together and pull together um, businesses, faith communities, 
uh, along the way. My, my, I recently spoke to a Rotary Club in Madison about that, and one of the things I suggested to them is, you know, oftentimes you take an adversarial role with maybe homeless folks that are coming in, but if you can develop a relationship with them, what you actually find is that, um, that you end up being in a better place, that they're more likely to treat your business well or um, to see um, things kind of function on a smoother level. I mean, we've, we've been doing this work for 10 plus years, actually longer than that. Um, somewhere along the way, we've never had a break-in. Businesses all around us have had break-ins. Why? We think it's because they know that this is a place that will respect them and give them help. Mm -hmm. And so when you treat people like humans, they sometimes that humanity comes back at you. So, so I think for me, it's it's how do we pull businesses, government, whatever we can get to address the specific needs of our community because we know our community, we know what's there. Somebody else may not. Okay, now Joy, what's up? First of all, I want to welcome to Nashville. Thank you, thank sir. you for being here. Thank you for deciding <laughs> to do this work and to take your expertise. Um, and assisting us as we attempt to really truthfully handle this problem. What do you want people to take away from this conversation we've been having today? Well, I think we've all kind of echoed into the fact of you don't, don't, I mean, I always say like, don't assume, you know, right? Like, don't assume, you know, what the the solution is. Don't assume, you know, what they need. Um, I was going to say earlier, you know, the two fastest growing populations of homelessness is uh, the elderly. 54% of our current yeah. guests are over the age of 50. Mm. Uh, but when you add that to a life devastated by homelessness, I mean, and comorbidity and things, uh, that's a lot older. And uh, families. So when we talk about collaboration, I mean, we need to bring those agencies to the table and figure out what they're doing and how we can bridge those gaps. Um yeah, but sorry. What was your question? I just, what, what, what you wanted people to take away oh, yeah. from this conversation, yeah. but I think collaboration and recognizing that we do not know the extent of the problem, right. but we also don't potentially have a solution. Therefore, it takes all of us to work together to create one. That's a great recap. I would also say uh, one of my big things is um, the church, you mm. know, equipping the church to, to do outreach in a different way yeah. and restore dignity. Well, I want to thank my guests. Thank you all so much for this conversation. Joy Flores with the Nashville Rescue Mission, Brian Hale with Neighborhood Health, and Pastor Jay Voorhees with City Road Chapel in Madison. Again, thank you all for this conversation and the work that you're doing. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Tasha A.F. Lemley. It was directed by Magnolia McKay. Laura Boach is our technical director. Live tweeting was handled by Elizabeth Burton. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Darren Bradbury. You can listen back at This Is Nashville or wherever you get your podcasts. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.